Digiday Podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter at Digiday. Kaylee, this week you spoke with Aaron Levant from Network. Network's doing kind of the live stream shopping thing. And obviously, Home Shopping Network and QVC, those have been around for decades doing you know live shopping programming on traditional TV. What's different about the twist that companies like Network are doing on the digital side of things? Yeah, well, the reason why like QVC and Home Shopping Network have been around for decades is because there is, you know, a, a good use case with them. They they do drive a lot of sales. The thing about QVC and like um, Home Shopping Network is that there's also usually like a um, discounting model involved, right? So you can get a really good deal on on a piece of jewelry or a, a set of makeup, things like that. Network targets a different demographic, first of all. They're targeting um, younger consumers uh, that, that are maybe in the like street style kind of category, you know, people who like sneaker drops and collectibles and things of that nature. Um, but they also don't do any discounting. That's really not in their model. What they really capitalize on are these like couple minute long drops um, where you have to be on the app, you have to be buying it in that moment, or you don't get it. Um, so they take this kind of different approach to it where it's very much be there or you know lose out kind of deal. And I think that's what's a unique kind of approach to live shopping that you know others in the US and in the Western world haven't done so much yet. In China, that's a different story. And um, Aaron gets into that quite a bit. But that's kind of the unique twist here. Aaron also gets into a bit of breaking news in your conversation with him, right? Well, like I mentioned, like collectibles is, is a big kind of category for them. And um, I guess what's going hand in hand with the conversation around collectibles is NFTs. Um, but Aaron said that they're launching an NFT extension of network this month. So that's an exciting area to get into. I think there's an, a lot of overlap and um, Aaron gets into the reasons as to why it makes sense for network and for their consumer base. But that's, a, I think, a very interesting and um, timely pivot to their company. Awesome. I'll leave it to it. Thanks, Kaylee. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us on the Digiday podcast today. Thanks for having me. Network. It's I guess it's being kind of dubbed the QVC for young people in the U.S., um, but it just seems like it's it's everywhere at this point, and it's definitely tied into the um, boom in e-commerce that has happened over the past year, especially. But um, I'd love for you to just start out by talking about Network and um, where the I guess idea came for it, but then also like your growth over the past, you know, few years now, um, especially this past year. And I'm curious to know how large your consumer base is. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're definitely right. People have called us the QVC for Gen Z and, and uh, that's an analogy that I'll take. I think that works in a B2B setting, even though when we talk to our actual consumer base, they have no idea what QVC even is. So it's a, it's a funny <laughs> right. analogy, but yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way to think about network is we're the definitive uh, live stream commerce platform in North America that it kind of caters to a, you know, pop culture driven, fandom driven community. And we aggregate all of your favorite brands and personalities onto a seamless live streaming technology and shopping experience for these curated time-based product drops that have a great amount of urgency around them. So you tune in at a specific time to see usually a personality talking about an exclusive product drop. And there's, you know, these things go really fast. Sometimes things sell out in a matter of seconds or minutes, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
and you're able to get insight behind those products and, and those those moments from the actual creators of those products or the two people coming together to create those collaboration products in many cases. And, um, you know, live streaming video commerce is a, a large business in Asia and in America, we're still in somewhat of a nascent stage here. Um, you know, in China, you know, live streaming video commerce is as big as Amazon or bigger even by, by GMV. And mm-hmm. You know, in the U.S., you know, early days, Network's been doing this since late 2018. Uh, we have, you know, over 2 million consumers on our native iOS and Android platform and a much bigger reach across social as well. Um, and, you know, we think that this can be a business that has, you know, 20 to 50 million consumers on over the next three, four years here. Um, so we think this is, you know, a multi-billion dollar market and um, it is a hundreds of billions of dollar market in China already. And uh, network so far from our understanding from the, you know, the publicly available data, we're the largest um live stream video commerce platform in the U S right now. Awesome. So 2 million active, uh, current users, I think you said, is this all like happening on an app? Do you have like a, a website or I guess like where, do, where are people really transacting? Yeah, right with now you? it's a native, um, app on iOS or Android. Um, there isn't a website other than just to direct you to our app in the future. Okay. This will be also uh, web and, and, and mobile web. Um, and then in the, distant future. We believe this is also an OTT experience, uh, but I think there's going to be some time between now and actually like ease of native purchasing on OTT on like a smart TV. Our whole thing mm-hmm. is that, you know, we're able to transact in like one to two clicks takes a matter of seconds. So that kind of like ease of purchase in like one seamless native environment is really important for our platform. And we very much so optimize for that. You said at the top, like Gen Z, I think is your primary user is that right like how what's the average age of your shopper millennial and gen z look i think you know 18 to 34 are are some of our key demos but i think the average age of a customer is between 28 and 31 Uh, and we have both we have users who just consume the content and haven't purchased anything yet and we have people who are also customers you got to think of us as kind of half media company and and half uh, e-commerce or marketplace company so i guess for like the mm, the people who aren't necessarily transacting, but are are coming to the app and like watching the programming and stuff like that, like um, the products that you're releasing to me from what I've like kind of picked up on, they're pretty like exclusive or they're maybe customized for um, like partnerships with whoever you're working with, like the artist or the designer. What do the people who don't buy things get out for like get out from the experience? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the easiest way to think of it is like part QVC, part MTV. There's a lot of programming on network that's just sheerly entertaining. Um, we have a weekly dating show that talks about dating and sex that also sells products. We have a weekly show about sneakers that features a lot of news about sneakers. There's exciting raffles and giveaways, and there's guest hosts on that show on a weekly basis. We have a weekly show about pop culture that kind of covers broader fandom, comic books, collectibles, toys, um, on, on a week, we had a live, uh, music performance in our studio this week from a from an up-and-coming band uh i'm forgetting the name right now but we have done live music performances uh today we're doing a, a food festival all day on network there's going to be some of the top chefs in the world doing recipes and cooking demos and then you can also buy stuff so you know i think it's like the ultimate um you know shoppable version of like a content channel that you love and it's not just trying to be transactional we want to offer you up entertainment value and when you can tune in live and see one of your favorite creators and also interact with them in real time they're answering questions from the chat, um, giving you insights on the product. It should have equal entertainment value as it does, you know, shopping or commerce value. How big is your team that's putting this on? Like, do you have a whole editorial operation that's kind of, you know, 
programming things or who's making up your team? It, it doesn't sound yeah. like it's just like we've buyers. got about a yeah, we've got about a hundred uh, team members right now. And uh, you should think the two core groups within the company that are really building the programming, um, or actually three, we've got our content team, uh, which are all people who came from like, you know, large entertainment driven content companies uh, who are working on putting out this content in collaboration with our community of creators who are publishing on the platform. We've got our merchandising team and our kind of business development team that's out there, you know, searching for the next brand and next creator to bring to the platform. And many of them have ideas on how they can integrate into our programming or create unique new programming for us on a weekly or monthly basis. And then we also have our festivals team. And there's this idea that we have a network called the live shopping festival. It's, if you look at like, um, Alibaba uh, in China, they have a platform called Tmall where annually they do this shopping event called Alibaba Singles Day, which is actually the largest shopping event in the world. Um, you know, I think in 2019, they did $38 billion in sales in one day. And they really took something that looks like QVC and made it look like the MTV Music Awards, right? They just made it this video extravaganza with celebrity. And we're doing something similar in a way, but doing it on a monthly basis, uh, but theming it around different audience verticals. So like today and tomorrow is all themed around food. It's a digital food festival. Um, we're doing one in October themed around gaming. We did one in March themed around basketball called Off Court. Each one of these events has a big celebrity curator, um, and, and dozens or hundreds of brands and products are being released in a very short time period. So our festival team has a lot to do with building that programming. And around those, there's also music performances, panels. So, you know, it's really a collaboration between festivals, content, and the merchandising team that's bringing those things together. I have a ton of questions about that. I'm curious, like, before, before I get into, like, the festival side of things, um, I'm curious about, like, your monetization strategy, because obviously you have the transactional like consumer revenue coming in. Do you do any like sponsorship kind of tie-ins or advertising at all? Or is this all like purely like um, consumer revenue? Yeah, we have a large um, branded content business. And in the future, we will have a a large programmatic ads business. So right now I'll call it like sponsorship and ads is about a third of the business. And uh, we think in the future it could be larger and it's a really important part of our business. And that's where non-endemic brands have an opportunity in most cases to engage with us. So we've worked with a ton of brands in the um, spirits, CPG, QSR, auto, um, consumer electronics, um, and even social platforms are sponsors or advertisers of network. And we do a lot in that field and it's been a very successful business for us. Right. And you said that those are non-endemic brands. So is it, is the, um, I think you called it the merchandise team. Are they like looking to go after specifically, like specific types of products or um, uh, uh, art pieces to have these drops on the site? Like what, I guess, what's your primary focus for the items that you're selling from a non like branded content point of view? Yeah. So when I say non-endemic, those, those advertisers, if you will, those are brands that, you know, if it's a Lexus or something, they don't, we're not going to necessarily sell at this point. I'd love to one day sell a car on the platform, right? They're really using the platform as exposure. Um, Tequila 1800, someone like that, right? We can't, you know, sell alcohol in that way, but it, it's more of a brand of contemplate. The rest of the merchandising team, they're out there working with creators. And we use the word creators as a catch-all to encompass people, brands, and entities of influence who have exciting consumer products that they'd want to sell on the platform. We're really looking for narrative-led products, store, products that have a story to tell. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to sell commoditized products. There's a lot of retail channels out there, whether those be marketplaces, big platforms like Amazon or brand direct to consumer channels, or even brick and mortar retail, where you can buy everyday commoditized product. If we work with a brand 
whoever it may be, we don't want their kind of like standard off the shelf product you can buy 365. We want something that's a collaboration, something that's an anniversary, something that's an innovation story, something that's in partnership with a musician, an athlete, an artist, an entertainment property. And it's this sensory overload that the consumers care about when you're bringing together, you know, two great entities in many cases, you know, this one plus one equals 10 to the consumer, mm-hmm. right? So I think we're really focused on those, those top shelf products from the top brands and creators in the world. Is that like, I guess, a unique approach to this live shopping that um, network has taken? Like the um, entities in China that you mentioned that um, do billions and billions of dollars worth of live selling, like, are they in a way selling those like marketplace items, things that you could potentially get on um, just a regular like yeah. website? I think that's a really important differentiation. So whether you're talking about Taobao in China or even in the US, Amazon Live, um, many of the things being sold are somewhat commoditized, right? You could buy them against you know, a, prod- a static product image against a white background and a description, right? Um, Amazon Live has been around for a while. I don't know much of the stats about it. I don't know much of it's published, but like, you know, I've checked it out and um, you know, they put a ticker on the top corner of their videos about how many people are watching. And the conventional wisdom would be that Amazon has this massive audience. Therefore, there should be millions of people watching or hundreds of thousands. In many cases, I see a dozen people watching, right? Um, and it's because any seller on the FBA marketplace, I believe, can go live and start selling on Amazon. And there isn't a lot of urgency to you know, buy a hammer from someone in a live setting. It, right? There's no entertainment value. There's no urgency. It's not special. So you know, live shopping is a feature that many technology platforms either do have or will have over the next year. So it's really about how you use that feature. And we use to take this exciting technology innovation, you know, that we built here and others are building and, and we, you know, make sure the way we're programming it and curating it is important. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not just saying that you have the internet is powerful. It's what you're going to build on top of the internet. Right. And we've chose to build this very exciting curated shopping experience. That's very editorialized. And I think that's the reason people would choose to show up live versus buy on demand from any other you know, mechanism they could in a traditional retail setting. I guess for like the listeners, because I'm I'm somewhat familiar with some of the products that have been on network, but can you talk about some of the more of like those curated or um, unique products and and the collaborations that you do? Like, who are you working with, and what are some of the you know very popular things that you've sold? Yeah, Um, it's a range. You know, in the last year, we've done really well with collectibles home goods and art. Those are three of our biggest categories. Um, and you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this, this company out of Japan called Medicom makes this kind of, it's an adult toy, but it's a collectible called Bear Bricks. Um, they go anywhere between $300 to $2,500 in price on average. Um, I would call it like the Fabergé egg of, uh, of my generation, right? It's something that you buy and you put on your shelf and it's like a status symbol and it expresses, you know, your love of design and, and pop culture. Um, you know, so that's one of our most popular items. Uh, just toys in general and kind of high-end Japanese or collectible toys that kind of license from pop culture artists is really, really popular for us. We do a lot of art, lithographs, prints, digital prints from a wide variety of street artists, contemporary artists, illustrators. Um, Takashi Murakami, who's a, a kind of a blue chip Japanese pop artist, is one of our most popular creators on the platform. He did a drop on Network last year. It was a charity drop where he sold $1.6 million worth of product uh, in about 10-minute period. Uh, we ended up donating all that money. But you know, some of these streams you know, can sell hundreds of thousands or, in that case, over a million dollars 
in, in goods in a very short period of time for one singular item. So, and those price points, we've sold products as expensive as $17,000 per item down to, you know, we have items that are $10, Funko, Pop Toys of the Migos. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety. Apparel is also a huge category for us, but, you know, food is also big. I, and I keep mentioning we have a food festival today and tomorrow. Uh, we're selling hot sauce last week. I think we sold you know, 2000 bottles of hot sauce in 10 minutes last week on a live stream, right? So I think there's dozens and dozens of applications against product categories, consumer electronics. There's so many exciting things we can be doing. And, and you know, beauty is a category you'll see us really start to take on this year. Since this episode is going to go up in a couple of weeks, just to give the dates of when the food festival is, it was um, Wednesday, May 19th, and tomorrow is Thursday, May 20th, obviously. But could you, I guess, like talk a little bit more about the festival strategy as well? Because I feel like, um, to your point about shopping holidays, like Singles Day and um, some other publishers I've covered have been trying to create their own like shopping events, whether they're like specifically tied to discounted, um, unique discount codes or um, getting the best deals. I think that's the strategist's strategy was to do best deals of the day. Like it's very much like oriented around sales, but they are trying to get into the shopping holiday mindset because I think it creates a lot of excitement. But can you talk about that strategy and how that's been working for you? You know, on the subject of these digital shopping holidays or shopping festivals, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, this, the shopping patterns that we're in um, historically at a macro level, especially here in the U S are really invented by corporations. Um, you know, and I mean by like, you know, I think Macy's or whatever their previous iteration was, you know, is responsible for, you know, the Christmas shopping season and, and kind of popularizing the idea of buying people gifts at pr- Christmas. And I'm sure that, you know, sees candies or a flower company has popularized the idea of, you know, buying stuff on Valentine's day. Right. And, you know, someone invented cyber Monday, someone invented black Friday, you know, companies can get behind these ideas. And at a certain point when they last long enough, we just accept them as societal norms. Um, you know, Alibaba really took advantage of this idea of singles day, which is not, not really a known holiday for the most part in the U S but it's the opposite of Valentine's day, celebrating yourself, buying yourself a gift. And, and then, you know, Amazon prime day took all these ideas and just created their own holiday and even individual brands like uh, Lucasfilm and Disney with may the fourth be with you around star Wars or Nike created air max day. So I think, content can drive consumer behavior and we just call something a holiday. It just seems more special. And I think most people are going in some of those cases with the, the wisdom of, they want to make it promotional. They want to make it cheap. It's discounted, right? We're going the opposite direction. This is a full price premium holiday that is underlined by content and curation and bringing the best creators and brands in the world and getting them to create their most special products. And, you know, we think this is really our strategy, which is like, you know, appealing to those fans in a very unique way. And, um, you know, previously to joining network to lead the launch here, I was, uh, helping uh, run a company called read exhibitions. And we had a company, a subset of that company called Read Pop, where we own many of the largest fan conventions in the world, such as New York Comic Con, PAX, biggest video game show in the world. Uh, we were the partners in Complex Con, and really these events that celebrated pop culture and fan culture and brought together these communities and a frenzy around content and buying exclusive products and engaging with the consumers. And I think in many ways, there's a lot of learnings from my previous role in this, in these shopping festivals. It's like something that feels like the energy of Comic-Con, but in a digital setting. And then we're able to, you know, copy and paste that strategy across many different consumer interest groups. So ours are not promotional or discounted at this point. I think in the future, we may play with that idea, but we're really focused on a full price uh, platform that focuses on the, the kind of shopping extravaganza around premium content. 
Got it. So even in the non like holiday um, or festival moments, do you really not integrate a lot of like discounting um, into the the we drops do or anything? Almost no discounting whatsoever. I, very rarely, uh, if any, I would say less than two times a year. Um, it's just not a part of our core strategy. You know, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth to say it won't be in the future as we grow and, you know, the needs of a growing platform or some brands may want to do that, but that's just not what we're doing. I think we're very much on the premium side of the market. Got it. Right. It, it's I mean, like it, the flash sale without the sale, but the flash part is what's interesting. It's the urgency of driving that behavior to tune in and engage and react in real time. We like that aspect of the timed nature and the urgency it drives, but the the sale part is not attractive to us, nor are the brands yeah. or creators we're working with. It makes sense to me. I, I have yet to kind of get into the live shopping experience myself, but there are moments where like, one of my favorite ceramicists just launched a line of um, new like flower pots. And I was like, I have to get one. There's only 45. Like I have to get it. And they were <laughs> not discounted. <laughs> I was like, I got to do it. So it makes sense to me that like this ma- like mindset drives the transactions. So I'm curious, like for the festival related, like or for the festival days, how much more do you make, I guess, in those moments than just like a traditional um, day of programming? Yeah. So let's say, you know, today is a festival day. And I think pretty much every 15 to 30 minutes from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. today, there'll be a new live stream happening, each one with a meaningful chef or restaurant or brand or celebrity. So, you know, feel free to tune in today to get a feel for that. But let's just say there'll be 40 plus things happening today. Um, where yesterday there might've been only four or five things happening. So it's, you know, it's 10 X, the amount of content being published and in each drop, the urgency around those things are really, you know, intense and special. And the, the energy the brands went through to promote their presence in that festival, I think is also heightened compared to what they would have done on an average, you know, kind of day-to-day drop. So you know, I think it's 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 a aggregation thing. I think when people feel like they're going to be sitting next to many of their peers, they feel like they need to show up in in a, in a heightened way. And um, you know, it's emotional, right? Just by calling it a festival, it seems more important than just saying, "Hey, it's it's Wednesday," or it's you know, it's just that idea, right? So much of this is emotional for brands. But I think you know, us being able to get everyone on the same page emotionally and calendarizing it. And kind of this fast-paced nature of the day will be programmed. You see extreme amounts of more sales. And, um, you know, our art festival in um, December of last year sold millions of dollars of product every day. Um, you know, so it's uh, it's definitely a, a strong value proposition, both for brands selling product transactionally and for our sponsors. We see heightened levels of branded content and sponsorship around those festivals because also you can imagine we have higher viewership on these days to an extreme extent. To that end, I'm curious, like, I want to get into the conversation around consumer behavior. Um, I'm curious, like, when you see the most action. So you said on days that aren't festival days, because on festival days, you have, like, about 40 different drops. But on a standard day, if you have only four to five drops, are these happening in the evening? Do you pace them out throughout the day? Like, what days and times of the day are are people actually, like, spending time on the app and, and shopping live? Yeah, we've experimented with a ton of different time spreads and, you know, they are spread out now starting anywhere between, you know, 9 or 10 a.m. PST all the way to call it 6 or 7 p.m. at the latest if it's a really busy day. Um, We seem to think the sweet spot in terms of peak viewership that kind of appeases the East and West audiences is um, probably sometime around 5 p.m. 
PST is probably the, you know, the prime time, if you will, in terms of peak engagement hours. But, you know, what we've also discovered is if you have an amazing product or you're a talent with a sticky audience, you could go at, you know, 6am, you know, and people will, will be there. Right. So, you know, there's always those few creators who can, you know, be the exception to the rule, but five to 6pm PST is definitely uh, primetime programming for us. I guess it makes sense. Like it, I just remember when I used to work in a mall, like sneaker drops, people would be standing out in line at like 7 a.m. Um, <laughs> just waiting for the, the store to open. And I was like, don't you guys have to like get ready for school or like work? Like, why are you here? But no, I guess that makes sense. Like if people want the product enough, they're going to make time to, you know, hop on their phone. Um, cool. So I'm also wondering, so you mentioned you've done um, a lot of like art related drops and, and digital art as well. Have you gotten into like the NFT space at all? I know that that's yeah, kind so of a, a hot area. I'll give you a, a exclusive breaking news story here on your podcast. Uh, Network Love will be it. launching an NFT extension on our platform uh, in June, um, which we oh, have cool. not announced anywhere yet. So we're excited about that. And, you know, we really see we're working with, you know, these really creative artists, creators, and lots of digital artists who, um, you know, either are some are already in the NFT space, some aspire to be in the NFT space or are curious about it. And we already have a massive audience of people who we've actually surveyed them. We found out about 35% of our audience already has a digital wallet or has some crypto holdings. And about 10% of the audience has already bought an NFT. Um, so we see our audience is, is ripe for this type of thing or is already acclimated with it. Um, and, you know, some of these creators who we have a strong relationship with and a strong trust with uh, would like to work with us because um, they already, you know, are up and running with us. They have a good feel for us. A lot of this is relationship. It's curation. If you're a creator and you call Nifty Gateway today, you might not get a drop slot for six months, right? While they may be the, the best platform or the definitive platform for the space right now, um, unless you're, you know, a somebody who's already connected with them or already had your, your stuff figured out months ago, it might be very hard to go to market there. So I think we're offering a differentiated set of creators or even digitally native creators a way to to drop and as well as obviously where we think will be uniquely positioned is pairing digital nft art drops with physical objects to go along with them right and obviously we're, we're well acclimated in the physical object space and how do we combine those things and create an add value experience and i think another thing we'll do uniquely is tell the stories through video of these creators how they how these collaborations came to be. And I think also in the same way we focus on collaboration in the um, physical goods world, we'll focus on collaboration in digital art as well. Just to make sure I understand, this is where um, digital artists will be able to like mint their NFTs and it'll be just available through your NFT extension or yeah, how- Net Network will have its own NFT marketplace to allow the creators we work with. It's going to be curated. It's not an open source platform. Um, so Got you have it. to be invited on just like you have to be on, on our regular portion of network. And mm -hmm. we're going to work with creators new and some existing creators we already work with in the physical object space to be able to sell NFTs on our platform and access our audience. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back. For the listeners that the biggest question is like, why do people care about NFTs? I think that's still <laughs> very much being talked about, but it already sounds like, a, like you mentioned 10% of your audience that you've surveyed said that they have already purchased NFTs um, or have a, a large portion also has like a, a crypto kind of experience. What can you say about like, the appeal of NFTs that would get, like, why is your audience buying NFTs and spending their money on something that's, you know, not truly tangible, like from your just kind of perception of it, yeah. what, what's the deal? 
my perception is it has a lot to do with your perspective. And in many cases, I think it has to do with your age, right? Um, you know, to someone who's older in general, and I think there's obviously people with exception to the rule, you know, they, they have a, a perception of media, right? Um, you know, a painting is a painting because it's on canvas. But then, you know, when I grew up, I was a graphic designer. I started doing paintings and drawings on like a Wacom tablet. You know, was that any less of a painting? Because I drew it on a digital tablet and it showed up on my screen. And then I ended up printing it out to show it to people on a t-shirt, on a poster, right? And I think the evolving, just like in music media, we started with a record, then we went to a cassette, to a CD, to an MP3, right? Like to me, media evolves and art is media. And I think, you know, people who are naysayers, I'm like, oh, I only will listen to a vinyl album. Like it's a nostalgia thing, right? I think the definition of, of where media shows up and the way artists deliver their creative process, I think is, is ever evolving. And I think will continue to evolve, especially in this world of VR. And I think there's a new subset of consumers and I'm on the fringe of this, but like, you know, I grew up playing Call of Duty and I would spend money in the game to buy an upgrade, a different outfit, a different weapon, a different thing. And, you know, there's a whole class of kids who grew up playing Fortnite. They're spending billions of dollars, you know, in these in-app purchases for games. And it's something that gives you um, a good feeling, right? A, a dopamine hit at a bare minimum, right? Like you enjoy it, right? Just like anything else. So I think, you know, there's a certain class of people who just natively understand the idea of buying digital objects and what the value is to them, whether it's a dopamine hit, whether it's a, a new way of collecting something. And, and I also believe long-term um, as we work through, and I think, you know, we're about six months out from Ethereum too, from what I've read, as we work through the environmental concerns on Ethereum and, and general cryptocurrency, um, in a world of rapid consumerism where people buy too many things and we're concerned about plastic waste and packaging and, you know, CO2 emissions, I actually champion this idea that like, it's okay to, to kind of collect a bunch of crap, right? <laughs> and we're all just collecting things that are expressions of who we are and how to express ourselves, our cultural artifacts that, you know, tell other people stuff about us, what we hang in our house, what we wear, how we express ourselves, right? It says certain things about you. And I would rather people did that in a digital sense. They could have this massive world where they have an over amount of abundance of consumption, where they've got, you know, mansions full of art and objects and things. And maybe in the future, as that becomes more energy efficient, we're not doing that in the real world and actually ruining the planet. So I think that's my long-term hope for what it is and why people care about it now. I think it's a range of people trying to get rich, of people who truly appreciate it. And then there's a smaller subset of people who actually really natively live in this like metaverse world and they see where that's going. And I think that will become the future. And, and again, just based on how many people at Facebook are working on VR, right? Like I think you'll see like that's the true end application where you can just accumulate endless amounts of aspirational things and, and live this like billionaire lifestyle in the meta in, in, you know, in ready player one in the future. But yeah. in real life, you could maybe reduce the amount of crap that you buy. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say ready player one uh, seems pretty close to reality. Um, just for the for the listeners who aren't really familiar with the environmental kind of concerns, um, uh, and I've written about this before on the website, so if, you, if for anyone listening is confused, there's a WTF on NFTs on digiday.com. But in there, I, I get a little bit into the environmental concerns. And um, if, if you have anything else to add to this, Aaron, I'd love to hear it. But it's just, it's just like essentially uh, minting and, and transacting in crypto and, and buying transacting with nfts there um it uses a lot of energy because it's such a secure method of transacting right so it produces a lot of energy it, it leads to extra carbon emissions than traditional um transacting with like uh, a visa or something like that 
um, that's the main concern. But the the hope is that in the next six months, I think you said, is there's going to be a more energy efficient way of doing that. There are already certain chains. People have their own chains, like I believe, and I'm not a super expert here, but people like Flow is an underlying blockchain that, that powers, I believe, like NBA Top Shot. Um, they have their own closed network that has a much higher energy efficiency than let's say Ethereum. Ethereum, which is what most people are minting NFTs on, um, seems to have a very high um, you know, energy usage, but they've publicized that they're coming out with Ethereum too, which would drastically reduce that that energy usage. And I think, you know, those concerns will be addressed, I believe, in the short term. And and then we won't have to be, you know, feel guilty about engaging in this. And actively I've had conversations with creators or celebrities who said, no, they won't take part in this um, because of their environmental concerns. And I totally identify and understand their their wanting us to sit on the sideline until this industry works itself out to a certain extent. But to your point, eventually if if people are buying things more digitally than they are in person uh, or in real life, I guess, then eventually there could be an offset of like less maybe plastic production or less, you know. I I think uh, long-term it has an environmental add value that, yeah, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're all trained, you know, from a young age that, you know, buying these things will make us happy. So why not go in the digital world and buy unlimited amounts of things and be really happy and not kill the earth while we're doing it? I think right. there's, a, there's a huge upside for us here in the long term as we get to that that place. Got it. Right. So just in the next, you know, couple of years, there's, there's this workaround period. Um, but I did want to get back to the kind of collectible nature of things because you mentioned that collectibles with the products that you're selling or during the drops, those tend to be very popular product category, right? Like I feel like NFTs really fit into that category is that right like can you talk about how you're trying to maybe or how you're thinking about maybe getting the people who are big on buying collectibles um like collectible products how you're gonna try to go about getting them into like a comfortable place with nfts like i feel like that's Uh, still a big gray area we we have a huge community of passionate fans who are passionate collectors of the various things that they love in pop culture like I mentioned, toys and art are two areas that, you know, we over-index in. And I think, you know, luckily we didn't have to get those people comfortable. There's been such a rapid amount of media coverage and and just organic content that's been created about NFTs and the collectible nature and everyone and their mother is talking about it. Um, that I think the world just got our audience comfortable with it. And now we're just helping them curate some really interesting things that go along with the same types of creators and and subcultures that they're already collecting in. And, you know, we have different groups of collectors. We have someone who is a true passionate fan who plans to buy and hold forever. We've got some people in the middle who I think plan and buy to hold for the majority of the time. And occasionally they'll trade some things out of the collection so they can buy something else that they like. And then I think there's a small group of what I would call these prosumers, people who literally buy and trade things uh, as a, as a living almost, right? People who buy and sell sneakers, collectible toys, you know, rare items as a, as a kind of side hustle business, either in separate from their day job or some people that literally make an entire living off of this stuff. Um, I think that part of the economy, both for network and in general, is probably overstated about how many people are actually making a living from trading these things. But there's definitely a lot of people I know who are doing, getting into the NFT space, thinking this is a continuation of, let's say, sneakers or bear bricks or whatever other thing they may buy and sell uh, in their other spare time. I think um, in covering like the publisher entry into NFTs, that 
is a big area, like how much the value can go up from trading and then thus the artist or the creator getting royalties off of, you know, future transactions and things like that. Um, I think that that's like a, an interesting area as well. And, and something that is probably the most glamorized in a way, because <laughs> to a degree prices can get really high um, <laughs> on those things, like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Ethereum or whatever. Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously with the bleeple sale and all these other things, I know Christie's has another auction coming up um, shortly. It's interesting to see. And, you know, there's a lot of these uh, Ethereum whales who were the people really spending this money who made so much money on Ethereum over the last few years when they got in, when it was, you know, very, very inexpensive, a matter of dollars. So those Mm -hmm. people had a, a lot of disposable income and were very interested in these digitally native crypto artists. Going back to, to revenue quickly, you mentioned at the beginning that um, about a third of your revenue is currently coming from sponsorships or um, advertising, but is the is the remaining two thirds, is that all consumer um, revenue at this point? Yeah, that's all commerce revenue. Um, and, you know, we, again, from all those categories we talked about, and uh, that's, you know, continue to grow. We think that will be, you know, a, a billion plus dollars in commerce revenue um, by twenty. 25 or so. Um, so it's kind of the trajectory that we're on and, uh, you know, we're excited about what that can do. And, you know, I think as you look at the platform, you know, today in May, we may have 40 drops a day during a festival. We think we'll have 40 or 50 drops a day on any average day towards the end of this year, beginning of next year. So the amount of live commerce and live streams from creators that will be happening on the platform in any given day, I think will, will grow tenfold. Um, now that our team's growing, we're rapidly onboarding new creators and going into new categories. Like I mentioned, beauty, um, you know, sports is a new category for us. You know, we haven't even touched on something as big as soccer yet, right? So there's just so many subculture genres. Even gaming is a big one for us where there's just so many creators to add who have so much amazing products and narrative-led products that we're looking for and have a sticky audience. And, you know, there's unlimited scalability for us in that area. Are you looking to expand your consumer base at all? Like the the people who come to network, are you trying to keep it in that like younger kind of millennial Gen Z category? Or are you trying to eventually like, I don't know, compete with QVC? Look, when I look at the, the demo on QVC, right, that's like retirees in middle America, you know, watching linear television. So I don't think that's ever going to be us. I think there's a lot of audience, you know, hundreds of hundred million plus people who core demo in those age groups. And then because we're not kind of like pigeonholed ourselves into like one um, kind of consumer interest group, like just saying sneakers and hip hop, right? Like we're doing so many things, right? Food is very differentiated. And a lot of these other platforms, not necessarily live stream video platforms, but I have seen some that are just for beauty or just for this, right? Because we're so multi-categorical, there's so much room for us to grow and we don't not want an older or younger demographic to come. I just don't know if what we're doing will, will appeal to them. But occasionally, like my dad is a big collector. Um, and he's, you know, he goes on, I was like, oh, I saw this thing today. I love what you're doing. I bought it, right? So, you know, and he's, you know, 67 years old. So I think occasionally we do have things that kind of speak to everyone, right? They're very universal. I think great product or great stories is universal. So, you know, we're probably not going to spend money targeting those people with ads um, to come to our platform, but definitely we organically occasionally draw in an older, you know, even a 40 plus year old audience on uh, sometimes. Right. And I did want to ask about the past year or two, because I just in general, e-commerce has um, rapidly, rapidly grown and 
just, yeah, the, I think people are, are online shopping now more than ever. Um, what was your kind of growth experience in the past year, especially during the pandemic? I'm sure you had to, to pivot to a degree with the programming and how you were going about doing these drops virtually uh, or remotely rather, but like the shopping like behavior, did that just explode last year for you? Yeah, look, I think it's it's well written about that in general. This is not network specific that we've seen. 10 years in adoption of e-commerce in one year across 2020 with the pandemic, right? People like my grandmother who are 94 years old started ordering groceries online, something she probably never would have done in her entire life if it wasn't for these forces and behavioral changes. So we saw adoption from people, even from myself, I never used to use food delivery, right? Uh, and now I'm doing it all the time. And now I can go back to restaurants, but I still find myself ordering Postmates. Um, so I think you know, these general behaviors obviously put a wind on our back in 2020 that more people were adopting using new platforms uh, and being open to trying new things. And I think we definitely um, had a windfall for our business with this 300% year over year growth. And I think that that will continue. It doesn't mean that now that people are coming back out and doing things, they're not going to continue because we've gained so much ground. And I think um, we've seen even coming into these months that things are opening back up. Our business has still been doubling or tripling. And in some cases in in March, um, I believe we had a 700% growth year over year on commerce from March of last year, which I mean, we saw significant growth in March last year because that's when shutdowns started. So um, I think this, this trend is going to continue and and in general, I think consumers change their behavior like in you know, a different business. But in 2008, around the housing crisis, a previous business that I was in, you know, brands also changed the way they spend money because, you know, certain ways they were doing things didn't work. And now they're open to being advertisers of a platform like network um, because it's a new differentiated thing. And they, you know, change in behavior through this crisis also, not just on the consumer side, on the brand side about how they want to go to market. They're going to decentralize their IRL retail presence. They're going to try new omni-channels extensions of their direct-to-consumer experience. Network represents that very well. And on the ad side, I think when we get in this iOS 14.5 world with this less than 4% opt-in for people to track them and are maybe inability to scale performance marketing as accurately as, as we had had before, I think brands and marketers will carve out more of their budget to try new things like network because it's an interesting new way to get in front of high intent consumers. Um, so I think all, all the overvailing, oh, kind of overprevailing conditions of the market uh, bode really well for our business case going forward. Right, right. And then also just in the in the quick conversation about like a lack of tracking, I'm sure you have just a just a ton of first party data on like transactions that have been made and, and what programming is being watched and things like that. I'm sure that bodes well really for you as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, we don't go through an intermediary like a Facebook who throttles our audience or keeps data from us. We are have a direct relationship with that consumer and we're able to serve up, you know, essentially, for lack of a sexier example, a shoppable infomercial with instantaneous gratification ROI. And I think one of the most powerful stats that we have on network is that we're, you know, have over a five to 6% average conversion rate from viewership to purchase on a live stream. So if you're studying e-commerce, if you're doing between one and a half to two and a half percent from total viewership to purchase, you're doing really well. So we have an astronomical mm -hmm. conversion. And that's because the intention of the people on our platform from the time they came in the doors, they knew they were coming to, you know, look at products to go shopping or specifically intended to go shopping that day. So the intentionality is very strong versus, um, you know, Instagram. I don't necessarily go there to go shopping. I go there to see what my friends are doing. I see the creators or brands they're doing really like, and occasionally I may see something I want, you know, the intentionality on network is very different, right? You know what you're doing mm -hmm. there. 
we also, you know, aspire to entertain you as well, but you know, you know, literally it says shop at the speed of culture in our tagline. Right. So people know what they're getting into when they come. Absolutely. And um, just to, I guess, talk a little bit about further growth of your audience too. Um, I imagine that, I think you said that uh, the artists or the creators that you're working with, if they have a big following, that tends to lead to a, a pretty significant influx of people maybe using network, um, the apps. How are you like, looking to grow your your audience and, and your consumer base? Is it a lot of kind of social media um, top of funnel like feeding or or how are you going about reaching those high intent? Yeah. Number one flywheel for us is bring on meaningful creators or brands who have their own sticky audience, get them to bring us a meaningful product, a narrative-led product, and getting them to invite their audience to come and and view or, or purchase that thing, right? And every time we add a creator, whether they add 100 new fans or 100,000 new fans, right, you know, we're adding new creators on a daily basis. And right now, we've only, you know, we've gotten this big with only a few hundred creators. We're going to go to a few thousand or eventually 10,000 creators, right? So each one of those represents an audience and then cross-pollinating those organic audiences. Over 70% of our user base has come organically, not through paid customer acquisition. There's a huge opportunity for us as you know we grow here to invest significantly more in paid performance marketing and, and, and going after the lookalike audiences of those creators and those other brands and other platforms that we think have have the right type of customer profile to be consumers on network. And then in general, what you haven't seen network do is market ourselves as a brand, as a platform. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've marketed a lot of individual products on a performance basis, but you haven't seen network really put itself out there and attempt to build the deep emotional connection between us and the consumer and tell the story that, you know, we're a platform for creators, right? We don't sell products. We empower creators. And I give an analogy here. Like I love the way masterclass markets itself. What I mean by that is I look at that and it's like, Oh, I look at this huge swath of amazing creators they put forward. And it's like, Oh, I want, Bob Iger for business and I want, you know, Gordon Ramsay for food and I want uh, Jeff Koons for art. And I find these four or five people in there that I like, I'm like, all right, I'll sign up because they, you know, curated this amazing group. And I think network has that ability to put out our, our group of creators forward in that type of marketing campaign and build a deep affinity with consumers to show them like we've assembled the most amazing group of creators who they love on the singular platform and they can come to this amazing curated shopping environment and engage with those people they love. So I think, you know, once we start to do that, I think we can become really dangerous in, in growth marketing. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us today. This is a really fascinating conversation and the the NFT extension, I think, is, is a super timely and, and smart. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.